Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Psalm 1. And you'll find this page uh, on page 448 of the the Black Pew Bible. This summer, as I mentioned in the announcements, we're doing a a short series on the Psalms until uh, the fall. Uh, And uh, the Psalms are, uh, as perhaps you know, part of the wisdom literature of the Bible. They are the songs, even poems, even the hymn book, even the prayer book of the Bible. The Psalms... uh, call us to praise God. They call us to trust God. They call us to pour out our, and invite us to pour out our souls like water before the Lord. And they help us do that. They actually give us language to do that. Uh, like other music does for us, the Psalms help us put into words our joy, our sorrow, our happiness, our sadness, our awe, shame, Fear, envy, anger, pain, peace, confidence, gratefulness, all kinds of things. So Calvin called the Psalms an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. He goes on to say, there's not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that there is not here represented as in a mirror. Or rather, the Holy Spirit has drawn here all the griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities in short all the distracting emotions with which the minds of men are wont to be agitated and so the psalter the psalms are a rich resource for the life of the believer and the expression of our life uh, with God this morning we're going to turn to psalm 1 and psalm 1 is a wisdom psalm teaches us where to find happiness Let me invite you to give your attention to God's word and consider your happiness. This is the word of God. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Amen. This is God's truth. May he cut our hearts with it. Let's look to him in prayer. Our Father in heaven, may... The words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Why is Psalm 1 Psalm 1? Why not the song we just sang? Don't we need to learn how to worship? Why not Psalm 100? Praise the Lord. 
Or why not Psalm 150, which ends in praise? Why a psalm uh, about human happiness, blessedness? Why, why not a psalm that begins with uh, mercy? Uh, like Psalm 103, that speaks of the blessings of being forgiven and reconciled to God. Why? Psalm 1. Because Psalm 1 colors all the Psalter. It shapes all of it. Here in Psalm 1 are set before us two ways. You may know uh, Robert Frost's poems. By the way, I just have to say, Robert Frost, the famous poet, perhaps one of the most American, he once said that Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, is the most beautiful campus in America. I had to work that in there as a graduate of such a fine institution. Robert Frost, who you otherwise know as the famous poet who wrote The Road Not Taken, said, what, two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. There are biblical examples of this kind of two ways thinking as well. Perhaps you know this is the way that the Sermon on the Mount closes an extended contrast Jesus draws in Matthew chapter 7 between two gates and two roads or two trees and two types of fruit or um, two, uh, two houses and two foundations. Uh, Jesus summed up the concern of Psalm 1 in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 13 to 14, when he said this, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Two ways, two gates. Psalm 1 makes the two ways clear. There are only two kinds of people. It says two, uh, two kinds of people with two uh, differing loves, two different lives, two different ends. And so the psalm invites us to ask, what kind of person are we? Well, let me outline the passage for you and we'll, we'll think about it together and we'll think of it in a positive light. Uh, let me outline it this way. In verses one and two, you see the delight of the believer's life. In verses 3 to 4, a description of the believer's life. And verses 5 to 6, the destiny of the believer's life. And so in the first place, verses 1 and 2, think about uh, the delight of the believer's life. A believer delights in the law of the Lord. Delights in God's word. Think about this. Psalm 1 here begins with blessed. Uh, Blessed means... um, supremely happy not superficially so or, or supremely fulfilled and satisfied it's it's in the plural here it's either a multiplied blessedness or or it's an intensity an intensification of blessedness he begins with the negative uh, happy or blessed is the man who does not who does not who does not happy is the man in other words He's described by what he shuns, what he turns away from. And what does he turn away from? He turns away from evil in all its forms, all the time. The three clauses show this. There's, there's the turning away from. The blessed man does not walk or does not um, 
Walk in the counsel of the wicked. Uh, probably here uh, shading the ideas, thinking of the, the way of thinking, a mindset, an outlook, listening to counsel. The, uh, the, the happy man does not uh, stand in the way of sinners here, uh, perhaps thinking of their behavior, their actions that miss the mark, and, and nor sit in the seat of scoffers, implying a kind of belonging. We'll come back to that. It's where you've settled yourself and find that you comfortably fit. So happy, in other words, is the person who's countercultural, who resists the pull of evil, though their whole generation goes that way. There was a long-lived lady who, when asked what the best thing about turning 104 was, said, there's no peer pressure. <laughs> but, of course, the righteous man here envisioned, man or woman, of course, let's assume, in Psalm 1, isn't 104 and meets with plenty of peer pressure and it may cost you to not go with the flow it it won't always seem evil what you're being invited to it may seem like somebody just saying you know if you don't think this way you're not a very smart person or if you don't do this with us you won't be cool or if um, you don't laugh at what we mock we don't really want to be around you. In, in the Semitic language, as others put it, when you, where you sit is where you belong. If you sit with men, if you sit with the Greeks, if you sit with the Romans, if you sit with the slaves, it's who you belong with. And that's what the word sit means in those contexts. That's what the word sit means here. You don't sit in the seat of scoffers. And so the psalmist says, do you want to be happy? You've got to find out who you belong to. And so there's a positive side to that. His delight, blessed is the one whose delight is what? Positively, in the law of the Lord. Now, many might think he's thinking about like the Ten Commandments or all those little stipulations in the Old Testament, but that's not what he's getting at here. Really, the, the word law is Torah. It's a, it's a larger category. It includes those things, but it, it really just means instruction or teaching. It's the whole counsel of God, of God's word. And this is his delight. It's his preoccupation. He meditates on it. Notice verse, he, he meditates on it day and night. And um, that idea of, of meditating on it is kind of like the idea of muttering or murmuring. Uh, you read it over and roll, roll it over and ponder it. You, you say, uh, let me see that again. I, I want to read that once more. You, you ask, what does this mean, Lord? Uh, you confess, I believe, Lord. Help my unbelief. Help me to understand this properly. It, as others have put it in a different kind of analogy, it's like chewing the cud. It's a cow grazing and, and well, bringing it back up to chew it over again. and Bring it back up to chew it over some more and really pull everything good out of it uh and so this guy found something in the torah of god the word of god that delighted him thrilled him captivated him what did he find in the law of the lord i suggest he found the lord of the law what did he find not just merely words on a paper truthful and from the mouth of the lord that they are But he found the author of those words. He found the one who gave his Torah so we could know him, so we could understand him, 
so we can receive good things from him and trust him. He's delighting in the words of the book because he met the author of the book in those words. And what is the central message of that word, of that Torah? It is the almighty God sent his son to die for you. To make you his beloved, adopted, and forever son or daughter. He loved you and gave his son for you. That's the central message of the story. And he delights in the God who did such a thing. And by the way then, his psalmist taking his delight here, finding his happiness here, in the Lord, the Bible is showing you that blessedness is a byproduct of something else. Happy is uh, the one, uh, perhaps you know, the, as Jesus put it in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, blessed is the one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. Uh, blessed is who, uh, the one who hungers and thirsts after something more than blessedness. It's not blessed are the ones who seek blessing. Blessed are the ones who seek these other things, particularly God himself. Um, if you uh, seek righteousness uh, more than happiness, you'll get both. But if you seek happiness more than righteousness, you'll get neither. The person who is happy is the person who has stopped trying so hard to be happy. Stop trying so hard to focus their attention on just getting happy. And has begun to look at something else. And the blessedness from God has come. Matthew chapter 6. You who are worried, Jesus says. You have anxiety over many things. He says, but seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. And all these other things will be added unto you. Your father knows what you need. He'll take care of you. Uh, But we might say by way of application. Look, if you make... Having a happy marriage, your number one priority and goal in life. I'm going to make my marriage a happy marriage. You'll never have it. Your spouse will fail to make you happy. And if you put that kind of pressure on them, you will fail to make them happy. If you make your number one priority a successful career. Arguably, you'll never have it because you'll always live with that anxiety of what if my career isn't a success? You'll be crushed by that. Happiness is rather a byproduct of seeking something, even someone else. God himself, he delights in the law of the Lord. Is God then interested in your happiness? Absolutely. This is how he begins the Psalter. Blessed. He's telling you how to be blessed. Tim Keller says this, and yet if you come to him to make you happy, you're coming to a false God. If you say I'm interested in Christianity, if I can see it will help me reach my goals and make me happy, Keller says you're not coming to God, you're coming to a butler. Somebody who just does your bidding. And so the irony is, the less you're concerned with your happiness, and the more you're interested in the God of the Scripture, 
the happier you get. C.S. Lewis put it this way, aim at heaven and you get earth thrown in, aim at earth and you get neither. Happiness then is a byproduct of delighting in God and knowing you belong to him and hearing him speak to you. In having his word, the word of the author, the word of the lover of your soul, the word of your loving heavenly father, tell you again, I am yours and you are mine. You belong to me as my beloved child through the work of my son. Have then you begun to delight in him. Then you know you've begun to taste lasting happiness that's the first thing I want you to see now the second is the description of the believer's life in verses 3 to 4 he describes this person who delights in God who delights in hearing God and knowing God he describes them as what a a fruitful tree Psalm 1 verse 3 he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and all that he does he prospers The land in which this tree is planted may be barren and dry. The winds may be hot. The dust may come hard against the trunk of this tree. But it has roots down deep that reach into a living river. The water of life from which it draws nourishment. It draws strength so that it can be a fruitful tree. The Bible here tells us that a Christian is not just a nice person or a person who does good things. A a Christian is somebody who has been planted into and rooted into something besides themselves. He's speaking in in Old Testament language here uh, by picture of the idea of a new birth, a new life. We're made partakers of something new. We've been rooted into Something. The most important part of the spiritual life of a Christian is the spiritual root system that draws resources from Christ. He is all the resource that we have. Jesus put it this way. John 15, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Without our roots in Christ, drawing life from him, health from him, bearing fruit from him, we we can and do nothing. But all who are in Christ have life from him and, and fruitfulness from him. We don't all bear fruit the same. At the same speed, in the same quantity, Jesus himself said, some bear 30-fold, some bear 60-fold, some bear 100-fold. But he is life to us. Now, by contrast, notice verse 4. The the writer says, not so the wicked. Not so those who don't trust in the Lord for their salvation. That's what the wicked are. They don't trust the Lord for their salvation. It, It expresses itself in the manner of life. Chiefly by ignoring God, denying God, saying no to God. And he says they are like chaff. Now, what's chaff? Maybe there's a few farmers and such around, but most of us don't ever have to deal with much chaff at all. Chaff is that that light skin that wraps grain when you harvest it. And um, 
You can't eat it until that chaff is removed. And so they, they gather in the grain from the fields. They bring it to the threshing floor. And either an animal you know, tromps on it or, or drags sleds over it or what have you in the ancient world. Uh, and then, and then the, the farmer comes and he, and, he, and he picks it up with maybe pans. And he throws it in the air and in the breezes. And I, I'm told they build the threshing floors on hillsides at the top in Palestine so that the breeze can then what? Float the chaff away while the heavier grain falls back down to the ground and is gathered to be eaten. And the chaff that doesn't float away is picked up and thrown into the burn pile. You're either a fruitful tree, the scripture says, or you are chaff. Occasionally somebody has the insight to look upon their own life and recognize all that they have been is just chaff. Marvin Alasky in uh, Prodigal Press tells the story of Horace Greeley, who was the editor of the New York Tribune for 30 years. Greeley believed man was naturally good uh, back the founding of some 40 communes during the 1840s, all of which failed. He advocated various other causes, among them free love. He always seemed to be pressing for something new, as if he might usher in a man-made utopia. And then he uh, ran for president, was crushed politically in 1872, and after the election, he, reflecting on his life, viewed it as a waste and a sacrifice to one foolish crusade after another. And in a statement not long before his death, he wrote, I stand naked before God, the most utterly, hopelessly wretched and undone of all who ever lived. I have done more harm and wrong than any man who ever saw the light of day. And yet... Greeley says, I I take God to witness that I've never intended to injure or harm anyone. I might dispute that any man could say that. But this is no excuse, he goes on to say. And he's right about that. Perhaps the only thing worse than, Ralph Davis says, than being chaff, is to live with the knowledge that you are chaff. But the righteous man is rooted in streams of living water and bears fruit like a tree. So I just ask you, what's going on in your life? Are you fruitful or fruitless? Are you a tree? Maybe you're just a young sapling. Maybe you're a giant sequoia. But are you bearing fruit? Or are you fruitless? And you're fruitless because you're lifeless. Now there's a last thing here, and that is the destiny of the believer's life in verses 5 and 6. Notice the language here, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The ungodly, the chaff, he says, are dead, rootless, blown about, good only for the fire. And he says, because there's a coming judgment, and the Lord, the righteous judge, will separate the as Jesus put it, the wheat from the tares, the sheep from the goats, the trees, we might say, Psalm 1 says, from the chaff. And nobody who doesn't trust the Lord for salvation will be able to stand in the assembly of the righteous. Nobody. The chaff, he says, will not stand in the judgment. We might say they don't have a leg to stand on. 
Why? They have no advocate before God on their behalf. They are left naked and alone before their maker who sees every secret thought of the intentions of the heart, which the scripture says is only evil all the time. Then they know they don't measure up when they see him as he is and they know they deserve judgment. They have then no justification. They will not stand in the judgment. But the trees, now this is just an implied contrast, but you understand the implication is there, clear. The trees who trust in the Lord to save them, they do stand in the judgment. What do we mean? Romans chapter 5, 1 and 2 says this, Having been therefore justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Believers, today, now, not just in judgment to come, now even, we stand in grace because of Jesus. But these, the chaff, have no justification and they have no ongoing communion. They will not stand, it says, in the assembly of the righteous. They, they're cut off and outside the community of God's people. But in contrast, the trees belong to God's people. We're planted together by the banks of the river. God's household is a giant forest of trees gathered around the river. And then he says the chaff have no hope. Verse 6, the way of the wicked will perish. But the trees do have hope. And the contrast here is made explicit. Notice the language. The righteous, it says, are known. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. You might think, as Sinclair Ferguson says, that he would say the righteous know the way of the Lord. But he says the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Their pleasure here is not in knowing the way of the Lord as much as in knowing the Lord knows my way. They take delight in knowing the Lord, of course, and in being known by the Lord, in other words. And so at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, by contrast to the wicked, depart from me, I never knew you. You workers of lawlessness. You might have thought he would say, depart from me, you never knew me. But I never knew you. Knew not because he doesn't have knowledge, but knew in the covenantal sense of entered into saving relationship with you. To bless you forever. And the important thing then that this psalm brings before us is the importance of being known by the Lord. Faith Cook. Uh, wrote a number of wonderful uh, things. I commend her biographies to you. She has many uh, biographies in Lives Turned Upside Down. And she tells the story of Ruth Clark, who in 1741 was born into a rather well-to-do family, but her father was a speculator. And by the time Ruth was 10, he had lost his fortune and walked out on his family. And so Ruth had to become a domestic servant. And she became a superb domestic servant. When she was 18, she went to work for the Venn family, uh, the family of Henry Venn, who uh, 
if you pay attention to 18th century theology and pastoral ministry, is a famous evangelical Anglican pastor and preacher. So she's working in his household. About a decade goes by, which uh, included the earnest address or pleas of Mrs. Venn for, uh, on her deathbed for uh, Ruth Clark. Ruth was eventually, in time, converted, brought to faith in Jesus, and she continued to serve the Venn family and that household uh, uh, for many, many years and, and bore fruit. As a true believer in Christ, she outlived Henry Venn. And then when her own health broke, she was invited to live with the family of his eldest daughter uh, in Brighton. And at age 67, living there, she was crossing the street. She was knocked to the ground by a a speeding horse and cart. And the accident brought on a more serious illness, and she was in her last days. And one of the Venn daughters visiting her asked her, if she had any doubts about her hope in Christ. And Ruth simply confessed this. Oh no, none. He that has loved me all my life will not forsake me now. I have no rapturous feelings, but I have no fears or doubts. She's repeating what? the language here of Psalm 1 verse 6, the beginning of it. He that has loved me all my life through will not forsake me now. The God who cares about every step I've ever taken will surely carry me as I step into eternity and appear at his judgment seat, she's saying. How can you and I then share her confidence? Share her faith in Jesus. A Jesus who said, John chapter 10 verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. And why is he the door? Why can he make such a bold promise in which we invite you to stake your life and eternity? Why? Because he is the perfect man portrayed in Psalm 1, who does not, has not, will not, never did walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of the scoffers. You understand that Psalm 1 is describing somebody who has never, does never, will never do those things. Does that describe you? Surely you can't make that claim for yourself. Harry Ironside, Bible teacher, told of a visit to Palestine by, name, by a man named Joseph Flax. He had an opportunity to address a gathering of Jews and Arabs. And so he took the subject of his address, the, address, the first psalm. He read it and then he asked the question, Who is this blessed man of whom the psalmist speaks? This man that never walked in the counsel of the wicked or stood in the seat of sinners or or, or uh, sat in the seat of mockers. He was an absolutely sinless man. Who was this man? And nobody spoke. And so Flax said, was he our great father Abraham? And one old man said, no, it cannot be Abraham. He denied his wife and told a lie about her. Well, then how about the lawgiver Moses, he asked. 
Well, no, someone said it can't be Moses. He killed a man. He lost his temper by the waters of Meribah. Flack suggested David. No, it's not David. There was silence for a long while, and then an elderly Jew arose and said, My brothers, I have a little book here. It's called the New Testament. I've been reading it, and if I could believe this book, if I could be sure that it is true, I would say that the man of the first psalm was Jesus of Nazareth. I think he's right. Uh, Augustine took this view of Psalm 1. Surely, he says, it's to be understood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Luther took it that way. The first psalm, he says, speaks literally of Jesus Christ. He's the, after all, the only perfect man who ever lived, delighted only in God, was rooted completely in God, and is ever green and bearing fruit. And so therefore, he is the wicked man's savior. He is the scoffer's only hope. And as we are in him, that righteous one, through faith in him, we are then righteous before God in him. And are graciously blessed by God, not on our own merits, but on the merits of Jesus Christ, we are blessed by God graciously with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus our Lord as a gift of His grace. And then, because we're new in Him, we begin to delight in the Father in whom He delights. And we begin to bear fruit because He is the fruitful vine and we are His branches. And we will be everlastingly happy in heaven because he was judged for us upon the cross. Put your hope in him and you will never be disappointed. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of your beloved, your only unique Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Grant us that faith that we might know the joy of that life with you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.